1: The following podcast contains explicit language. So I have Carl Icon. Does anyone know Carl Icon? Carl is great. Carl Icon called me. Carl Icon's a great guy, very successful.
0: They you know do. him. Is he I, racist? I, I know him. I think it's ridiculous. And then you have to put people into these agencies like Scott Pruitt that's gonna do the job.
1: Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who ignored NASA's advice not to look into the eyes of the sun. Because mama, that's where the fun is. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So here at Trumpcast, we get caught up like everybody else in the headlines Donald Trump generates. If you listened to our show last week, we really couldn't talk about anything other than the president's apologetics for neo-Nazis, Confederate revanchists, and white supremacists. But when you get caught up in the latest outrages, you risk missing what's really happening in Donald Trump's Washington. What's happening is corruption on a scale we haven't seen in the federal government since the 1980s and quite possibly not since the 1920s. Trump and his family are using the presidency to make money by directing customers to patronize their businesses, raising prices, and using their political power to change the rules in their favor. But you knew that already. What you might not have known is that the Trumps and Kushners are not the only people treating the White House as an unguarded piggy bank. Friends, supporters, and associates of the president's are all getting in on the action. I've talked about this before on the show, but the best precedent I can come up with is Reagan's Department of Housing and Urban Development, which the senior staff essentially looted. The people running HUD in the 80s didn't think it served any real public purpose. They just saw it as a target of opportunity. And by the end of Reagan's second term, you couldn't find any programs at HUD that weren't rife with corruption. The more obscure and complicated an agency's issues are, the easier it is to swampify it. Highly technical regulatory changes that never get reviewed by Congress can be worth hundreds of millions of dollars to self-interested parties. Without ethical standards, without the enforcement of rules about disclosure and conflict of interest, it's just open season. And it's open season right now at the EPA, HHS, HUD, the FCC, Interior, Agriculture, Energy, and lots of other departments and agencies. My guest today caught one of Trump's cronies with his fingers in the till and got him fired as a special advisor to the president. I'll be back in a moment to talk about Carl Icahn with the New Yorker's Patrick Keefe. But first... I want to tell you about the live show we're doing in Austin, Texas on September 23rd at the Texas Union Theater. It's part of the Texas Tribune Festival. We're going to have two special guests, Jill Abramson, the former editor of the New York Times, and Representative Joaquin Castro, who represents San Antonio, Texas, as a congressman. He's one of the Castro twins. It's going to be a great show, and you can get tickets at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com. Slash live. My guest today is Patrick Radden Keefe. He's a staff writer in The New Yorker and his article in The New Issue is Carl Icahn's failed raid on Washington. Patrick, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. Um, so this was a fantastic piece that got results. Carl Icahn has been fired or, as he says, resigned. It's really the uh, the talk of of Washington. I guess I can't say the talk of the town because it's a New Yorker piece. Um, But uh, just for those of our listeners who may not remember the 1980s, who is Carl Icahn? So Carl Icahn was this, he's he's a very 80s figure, right? He kind of came to prominence
0: as one of the original corporate raiders back in the 80s, so a guy who did hostile takeovers. And he's interesting because at the time, he was this very rich guy who was, said to be one of the inspirations for the Gordon gecko character in in Wall Street, but was also somewhat reviled because what he did was he came in and, and took over corporations, and the corporations themselves often didn 't want him to and so he was a bit of a pariah back in the '80s and even into the '90s but but these days he is just one of the richest guys in the country. Forbes says he's worth about $17 billion, and he's kind of a fixture on CNBC. So he's he's kind of been embraced by Wall Street, uh, belatedly.
1: And he's he's over 80 now, but he's very, as you write, uh, been close. Well, I don't know if you can say close, but he's had a good, one of the people who's had a good relationship with Donald Trump for a long time. Trump likes him. He said nice things about Trump. He was a Wall Street person who supported Trump from early on, right? Yeah, well, Trump, I mean, it's interesting because he was one of the
0: few Wall Street people who came out early on and really bet on Trump. And at a time when Goldman Sachs folks were saying nasty things about Trump and Trump was saying nasty things about Goldman Sachs, and he had a really... um, a slightly tense relationship with the the more traditional financier crowd in New York. Icon kind of embraced Trump and said, look, I'm going to I'm going to uh, stand by this guy. I've known him for decades. And the big issue for Icon was was deregulation. He said, I think Trump's going to go in there and, and cut regulations back. Uh, and on that basis, he, he threw his weight behind Trump.
1: So let's get to the grotesque corruption or I guess maybe aborted corruption at the heart of this story, which has to do with an effort to deregulation. Regulation, um, or I don't even know if you call it deregulation, but changes in regulation that would benefit Icon personally and materially. What did he try to do? So it gets it gets pretty complicated, but in essence,
0: Icon is a is the the major stockholder in or the dominant stockholder in a a refiner, a Texas based oil refiner called CVR. And under the Renewable Fuel Standard, which is a law passed under George W. Bush that, that tries to incentivize uh, the blending of ethanol and other uh, biofuels into gasoline, the refiner that ICON owns was obliged to buy these credits, these renewable fuel credits. They either had to blend the ethanol, or if they didn't do that, they had to buy these credits. And at the time when he purchased his stake in 2012 in the refiner, those credits cost very little. They cost about a nickel each. But the price had gone up and up and up for the credits. And so by last summer, by the summer of 2016, this refiner, CVR, was paying about two hundred million dollars a year to purchase these credits, and this drove Icon berserk and Actually, long before Trump seemed like a uh, like the presumptive nominee or a really legitimate candidate for the White House, Icon was out in a very public way saying the epa which which regulates this this system with the credits needs to change what they call the the point of obligation. So basically, uh, refiners like mine, merchant refineries like this, should not be the ones who have to purchase these credits or blend the ethanol. You need to shift that point of obligation basically closer to the gas pump. So it was this pretty obscure rule that he became totally obsessed with. And talking to people who know him, this is kind of typical of Icon. He's hugely wealthy. He has interests all over the place. But if there's one small thing that begins to drive him crazy, he'll just obsess over it. And he became obsessed over this particular rule.
1: And to be clear, there's no kind of intrinsic right or wrong here. I mean, because Iowa has outsized political power, uh, we have corn-based ethanol in our gasoline. And some people argue that it's been environmentally beneficial. And some people argue that it's been a massive boondoggle. I'm a little bit on the massive boondoggle side. But This isn't like pro-environment versus anti-environment. This is the interests of certain refiners versus the oil companies or certain refiners versus other refiners, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, the current arrangement under the Renewable Fuel Standard, you, you, would, you would be hard-pressed to find someone who would tell you uh, it's working really well. There are all kinds of critics uh, who have, I think, legitimate bases for criticizing the way in which uh, the standard operates today, and, and various people who have disagreements about how you would fix it, you know, whether you would make fixes to the current arrangement, whether you would draw up whole new legislation. It was important for me in writing this article to be somewhat agnostic on the merits of the actual argument that icon was making because because to me the argument is not the point it's actually a story about government process
1: and i think that's exactly right i'm not sure there are any merits but what icon did is just so clearly corrupt i mean he essentially and i'm going to kind of characterize your story maybe a little more casually than than you carefully document what happened here but he essentially started saying to people look Trump's going to sign an executive order changing this regulation so that it's no longer the responsibility of these oil refiners to get these credits. And then he sends – it sounds like he sent Trump an executive order, which he wrote in a half-assed, not-knowing-how-to-write-an-executive-order way for Trump to sign. And the price of these credits, which trades very non-transparently, shot down – because he created the impression that Trump was about to do this, and he was then able to buy the credits he needed on the cheap. Yeah, I mean that's
0: that's more or less tracks with with what I was able to document. I did, there was a period of time in February. I mean, part of what's fascinating about this story is. It's weeks into the new administration. Um, You know, you're not even talking about the first 100 days here. And you have this really obscure EPA rule that nobody's ever heard of. But it's a major issue for this one guy, Carl Icahn, who Trump had appointed to this Sort of novel position. You know, his title was special advisor to the president for, uh, I think, regulatory affairs or something of that effect. But it was unusual, as you know, as these appointments go, because he didn't need to disclose anything. He didn't need to give up any of his assets. And he comes in, and pretty much the first thing he does in that capacity is to urge Trump to make this change that will directly benefit him. And we know this in part because he'd been really aggressively kind of publicly lobbying for this change in the month leading up to the election. Uh, and as he's doing this, yeah, he's also meeting with folks in industry and essentially, you know, not saying necessarily and explicitly, I'm speaking for the president, but saying I've talked to the president. It looks like he's going to make this change.
1: I'm the special advisor to the president on this stuff. I mean, he clearly has the title that allows him to imply he's speaking for the president.
0: Well, so I interviewed a guy, this guy, Bob deneen, who runs one of the leading uh, trade groups for ethanol, who ends up negotiating with ICON and basically uh, initially what happened is he completely changed the stance of his organization they had always opposed the idea that you would shift the point of obligation and he goes into these meetings with ICON and he comes out and he says we've, we've done an about face, we're going to make this change and initially what he, when he was asked about this by the press he said oh you know a Trump administration official told me this change was coming and then certainly with me he said but the only Trump administration official I ever talked to was Carl Icon."
1: So it's a conflict of interest. It looks like insider trading. Why isn't Carl Icahn being indicted and prosecuted right now? I think there are a bunch of answers to that.
0: I mean, in talking with Icahn and in talking with his lawyer, they they make a bunch of different arguments. I mean, they claim that he never had an official role which I think is kind of nonsense. I mean, there was a press release put out by the transition with quotes from Trump saying he's going to come in, he's going to have this title. There are questions in terms of whether it would be an insider trading case, that, you know, the fact that he was making, uh, he was essentially shorting the value of these credits. The credits are a commodity, so it wouldn't be a securities case. But there could still certainly be a fraud case there. I talked to lawyers who thought that there would be. But the other thing is, look, there's a federal statute that says that if you are an executive branch employee, other than the president and the vice president. You cannot give advice on a matter in which you have a personal financial interest.
1: You also can't manipulate the markets, right? I mean, short of insider trading, it was illegal to manipulate commodities markets before anybody was being prosecuted for insider trading in the stock market. Exactly.
0: Well, and in fact, there are broad Kind of fraud statutes in which, in theory, yeah, you could say, look, if you're in a situation in which you're, you know, you're out there, um, whether it's that you know you know, you know secret information that other people don't, or in some ways almost worse, right? You're you're trying to kind of convey an impression in the market that something's going to happen that maybe isn't going to happen. Certainly, you can look at the the value of these credits, and there's just when you look at how they, when exactly they, the value dropped and you map that with the news of these conversations that ICOM was having, it's just there's, there's no way not to conclude that he was driving the price down.
1: Patrick, I'm more outraged than, than you are about this. I mean, <laughs> this, this this guy, I mean, he deserves a fair trial like everybody, but he should be in jail. I mean, what he well, did, is he that, should I mean, be in jail.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I think the crazy thing is that the— and this was a frustration for me as a reporter, right I don't have subpoena power, so in terms of the trades, it would be really interesting to find out when and how those were authorized and how again that maps on to the timeline of the conversations he was having with folks in the administration but you get you get to this kind of crazy situation where is the is the Trump Justice Department going to investigate? I don't think so uh, you had. All, a whole bunch of Democratic senators who've written a whole string of outraged letters about ICON to anyone who they can think of, and they're not really getting responses, they're not really getting any traction. So you did have this kind of interesting situation, which was within um, you know a week before my piece came out, the White House told me, hey, you know what, ICON's no longer working for us in any capacity. Um, and then hours before my piece posted, I kind of announced himself that he was stepping down, which I think seems to indicate that they're aware that there's a real- <laughs> Well, this, in
1: this case, they succeeded in firing him before he quit. Yes, yeah, exactly, um, and I can, I can document that.
0: Though it, it says actually a lot, I think, about the psychology. It's, it's interesting, because I kind of Trump share a certain kind of, um, I thought of it as like the, this kind of simian dominance code, right, where there's, there's only ever an alpha and a beta in any interaction. And so I, I did think it was interesting that the White House kind of broke up with him before he could break up with them. And then in his press release announcing he's stepping down, he says, "This was my decision. You know, I did this. It's not that they let me go."
1: And it was the week of Charlottesville, but he didn't say it anything. I mean, this was the week that all his other business advisors were resigning from their from their commissions and appointments and the councils. But he, his, didn't have anything to do with that. It was because of your story,
0: exactly. And I have to say, I mean, I think on some level, part of what's interesting to me about the icon story is if you it's primarily the financial press that covers this guy. And it is amazing to me the degree to which they will stenographically take down whatever he says in terms of him explaining. And so there was, in fact, after he resigned, there was this whole kind of round of stories in which, if you just read the headline of the story, you would think here's another guy who's been kind of pushed to a crisis of conscience by the awful events. In Charlottesville. And in fact, if you read icon kind of 's statement, there's none of that at all. It had nothing to do with his, his uh, you know, it didn't in any way, I don't think, inform his his motivation.
1: It was sort of convenient timing for him. But um, back to this question of, of prosecution. So, as you say, we can't exactly look to the Trump Justice Department to uh, thoroughly investigate this. I hate to say it. We need another special prosecutor for this case, right? I mean, it's a—it's it, clearly it's it's federal. I mean, you might have a New York prosecutor who would take it on if because of the abdication of the Justice Department. But there should be a federal in, investigation, and you need an independent prosecutor to do it.
0: Uh, I think that's I think that's probably right. I will say, as I was working on the piece, I heard a number of rumors from different people suggesting that. Um, that schneiderman the the Attorney General in New York might be looking into this i, I couldn 't get any Confirmation of that, but I did talk to Elliot Spitzer, who had held that job in the past, and he said, "Oh yeah, if this came across my desk, and I was sitting, uh, you know, in my old office, I would, we would absolutely take a hard look at this." But yeah, I mean, I could uh, look. I, th- I think it, there is a broader context of conflicts of interest here, and this is one case. It strikes me as an especially egregious one, but I think that there are are a bunch of different areas that you could have somebody looking into, and, and probably in a, in a fairly fruitful way. I think it tells you a lot that Walter Shab who when he was inside the government uh, was, was you know, making noise about these ethics issues, ends up basically being forced to resign and, and, uh, and now speak about it from the outside.
1: Well, the idea of any kind of ethics advisor or, or inside the White House is, is obviously a joke. I guess the question is more about, you know, how you remedy it in the absence of that. But you know what's interesting, as you say here is this sort of this isn't just an instance it's a parable of a lot of instances, maybe a particularly egregious one. But I think we have tended to concentrate in the Trump watching community on the ways in which the president is enriching is enriching himself and his family by using the, the the uh White House and the presidency um obviously outrageous, but it what tends to get overlooked is that there are a lot of other people doing it, too, and that he's letting this happen, encouraging it, abetting it. And Carl Icahn, presumably, is not the only crony of Trump's who thinks he might be able to not pocket at a few hundred million dollars by basically corrupting the regulatory or deregulatory process.
0: Not at all. And it's amazing, I mean, both in his conversation with me and in his resignation letter, the craziest thing is Icahn... Admits, and I think he thinks this is exculpatory, he says, the only issue I ever advised on, the only issue I ever told Trump what to do about was this one where I had some skin in the game. So he, you know, he comes out and and essentially says, outside the four corners of my own self-interest, I didn't have any regulatory ideas that I was bringing to the president. I mean, the, the the way this whole piece got started for me was I had a conversation in February with someone. I, w- I was meeting with a source, a financier, actually about a different story, and he mentioned Icon, who he knew. And what he said to me at the time was, there's this whole circle of people around Trump who essentially are regarding this presidency as a, it's like a corporate raid on Washington. Uh, they're going to go in and get what they can get. Um, and that was the theme that came up again and again, talking both to finance folks who know these people in New York, but also to government folks in Washington who I think feel a little bit blindsided by this mentality, even people in the Trump administration, there was a, there's a guy who works for Gary Cohen, a guy named Mike Catanzaro, who works on the National Economic Council, who ended up kind of putting the brakes on this ICON executive order. And I talked to a couple of people who Catanzaro has spoken to, so they were characterizing uh, for me conversations with him. But one of them said, you know, Mike essentially was forced to say, hey, look, the government is not a vending machine for the president's friends. And this guy said, you know, it, unfortunately, not everybody in this administration takes that view. I mean, some, some people really do seem to think that it is um, that it is there to be pillaged.
1: So I guess just a last question about Icon himself. I mean, this guy, as you say, is worth $17 billion. He is over 80 years old. Why does he want to risk going to jail to make a few hundred more million dollars? I don't know
0: that he fully appreciated the risks going in. And I think that strangely for a guy who's so sophisticated, he was actually a little bit naive about, about how easy or hard it would be to, to engineer this kind of thing in Washington to, to to change a regulation. But look, I think there's, there's something compulsive about icon and some of it. He has a really interesting backstory and uh, I think issues from his own childhood that I'm, I'm not, playing armchair psychologist here because he talks about them relentlessly where he's you know he's clearly there's there's clearly some hole that this guy is trying to fill he said himself i mean there's an amazing line years and years ago when he was less than 81 someone asked him hey you know you're never going to be able to spend all the money you've got why keep making it and what he said was it's a way of keeping score and I wonder if, you know, if that's your if that's your mindset, I wonder if it's possible to stop.
1: Every line in, in the movie Wall Street is like something Carl Icahn actually said.
0: Well, and in fact, the line, the line uh, uh, reportedly, the line, uh, if, you want a, if you want a friend, get a dog, <laughs> came after after Oliver Stone, while researching the film, went and met with Carl Icahn.
1: But he didn't say lunches for wimps, wasn't that from Wall Street, too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. That may have been someone else.
1: <laughs> I've been speaking to uh, Patrick Radden Keefe of The New Yorker. His story in The New Issue, which you must read, is about Carl Icahn's failed raid on Washington. Patrick, thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you. I've been in this business since 69. Most of these Harvard MBA types, they don't add up to dog shit. Give me guys that are poor, smart, and hungry, and no feelings. You win a few, you lose a few, but you keep on fighting. And if you need a friend, get a dog.
1: That's it for today's show. But I have one request. Would you give us a rating and review on iTunes? The rating might be, for example, five stars. And in the review, you might say, for example, why you like it. But you don't have to do it. Just go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. Also, are you listening to Slate's Hang Up and Listen? It's one of the best sports shows out there. I listen to it, even though I'm not that into sports, because it's such a good and interesting show. Every Monday, Josh Levine and the company break down the latest storylines in sports. You can hear them discuss football in the wake of Charlottesville with a former NFL player. Check that out by going to Slate.com slash hangup. That's Slate.com hangup. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon. Thank you, Jason. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.